Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is designed for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Tamara Fernando from Cambridge University. And I'm your host, Kelvin Ng from Yale University. Pearls, People, and Power, Pearling and Indian Ocean Worlds, out from Ohio University Press 2020, co-edited by Pedro Machado, Joseph Christensen, and Steve Mullins, is the first book to examine the trade, distribution, production, and consumption of pearls and mother of pearl in the global Indian Ocean over more than five centuries. While scholars have long recognized the importance of pearling to the social, cultural, and economic practices of both coastal and inland areas, the overwhelming majority have confined themselves to highly localized or at best regional studies of the pearl trade. In contrast, this book stresses how pearling and the exchange of pearl shell were interconnected processes that brought the ports, islands, and coasts into close relation with one another. Essays from a variety of disciplines address the role of enslaved persons and indentured workers in maritime labor arrangements, systems of bondage and transoceanic migration, the impact of European imperialism on regional and local communities, commodity flows and networks of exchange, as well as patterns of maritime re- marine rather resource exploitation between the Industrial Revolution and Great Depression. By encompassing the geographical, cultural, and thematic diversity of Indian Ocean pearling, Pearl's People and Power deepens our appreciation of the underlying historical dynamics of the many worlds of the Indian Ocean. Today, we're here to talk to Professor Pedro Machado, one of the editors of the wonderful volume Pearl's People and Power, Pearling and Indian Ocean Worlds, along with Steve Mullins and Joseph Christensen, By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn about the history of pearl production, distribution, and trade, its history from the early modern period and back to the 21st century, and its deep connections with several ports, islands, and coasts around the Indian Ocean. Pedro Machado is Associate Professor in the Department of History at Indiana University. His intellectual interests center around the intertwined past of Indian Ocean areas and regions, having been trained as a world and global historian of the connections across this oceanic space between Africa and South Asia. In particular, he researches and writes about the intersecting histories of, uh, of Western India and Southeastern Africa in the 18th and 19th centuries, and about how these histories were mediated by particular social and commercial networks of South Asian merchant groups. Central to his research interests have been identifying how local, self-sustaining capitalists structured exchange fueled by reciprocal consumer demand across the western reaches of the ocean at a time from the 1750s of growing and competing imperial interests for control over the global commerce of the Indian Ocean. 
His first book, Ocean of Trade, examined the multiple dynamics of Banias, South Asian merchants with network headquarters in Durandaman in Gujarat in Western India, in connecting local and regional commercial systems in South Asia and East and Southeastern Africa with rapidly intensifying global systems of material, social, and cultural exchange from the mid-18th to the first half of the 19th centuries. Welcome, Pedro, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your rich volume today. It's you know, a pleasure to be here. Thank you, um, you know, both for the invitation, um, and I'm really looking forward to the next, uh, you know, the next hour or so. So can you just start us off by saying a few words about yourself, which is how you became interested in this field of study and how did this added volume come to be? Um, you know, I grew up, I think, um, as, a, as an early kind of influence. I, I grew up in uh, a port city, Cape Town in South Africa, um, which, you know, um, is a really interesting and fascinating place and was marked has been marked by um, the sort of the cross currents, you might say, uh, of the Indian Ocean, certainly also of the Atlantic, um, <clears throat> but it's, I think, especially richly marked by um, its sort of broader, um, you know, relations with, um, with the Indian Ocean, um, both the sort of Western and Eastern, although in some ways I think that's um, something of a false divide. Anyway, you know, so Cape Town, where I was raised um and with the sort of the food ways of, of the uh, you know city uh very much marked by those larger histories that relate to you know for example you know, issues of slavery uh, and freedom you know indenture uh but of course also trade and economic exchange um and i think you know Coming also from a Portuguese sort of diasporic background, I was sort of, I think, attuned from a relatively early age uh, to a kind of larger world sort of out there. So I was always, I guess, um, you know, looking um, to the sea in a certain sense. Of course, in the, you know, early on in a very you know, unsophisticated uh, kind of way to be sure. Um, and having gone to the University of Cape Town for my undergraduate degree this is now um the sort of uh you know early mid 90s um uh, and taking classes with um a couple of you know influential scholars uh only really one of whom um did work uh that sort of connected the um you know the cape and cape town to broader currents and then indeed went on to develop that work uh you know even further nigel warden who uh did work uh, some heartbreaking work on Dutch slavery at the Cape. Um, but there were others also in this period working, you know, starting to work in sort of serious and sustained ways on, um, you know, on Cape Town as a port city with a sort of, um, yeah, a larger kind of connection to um, these other places that that would only really develop um, in a more sort of deep way um, in the post-apartheid years uh, but then at places like, you know, Witz in Johannesburg and not really at UCT as, um, as such, meaning kind of uh, reading the Indian Ocean from South Africa and kind of bringing South Africa into the Indian Ocean. I'm thinking, here, of course, of Isabel Hofmeyer, who was a leading figure here. Um, but that only really began to gather pace from the sort of uh, uh, early to mid-2000s. Um, when I was at UCT, 
still, you know, much of the focus of South African historiography was uh, on, you know, labor. Uh, the, 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 the sort of Marxist the tradition was very strong, um, interest in resistance movements, uh, you know, things of that nature in a quite sort of insular way in many regards. The one other scholar who was there um, uh, at the time, to Patrick Harris, who worked on sort of labor uh, in Mozambique um, and you know, slavery uh, was also something of an influence. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had a sense that I didn't want to do um, work uh, on South African history. Um, I wanted to do something else. I wasn't really sure, you know, what. But again, having grown up uh, in Cape Town, I wanted to sort of possibly explore, um, you know, uh, the connections of places in Southeast Africa, East Africa, uh, and I wasn't sure sort of um, where, you know, I, um, but I had some particularly, um, uh, you know, kind of um, important experiences that led me to sort of think about South Asia and uh, uh, about India uh, and its connections to South Africa, uh, to, to, to um, uh, sort of East Africa, right? Of course, um, you know, and people were working, and one of those experiences uh, that, that, that I had, um, you know, kind of brought this home for me. You know, people had been working on communities uh, of, you know, South Asians uh, in um, sort of uh, northeastern South Africa. So, you know, the Durban um, area uh, in what was uh, then, you know, Natal, today KwaZulu Natal. Um, you know, they've been worked on on uh, on indenture. People have even worked on Gandhi's time in South Africa. All of that um, stuff. But again, I wanted to sort of step away from South African history, and that sort of then led me to think about um, you know other places. Uh, and I was interested in, I think, because of my own kind of diasporic um, background too. I was interested, I think, in um, sort of you know, migration, uh, you know, diasporas, um, uh, you know, and, and of course we can critique that, you know, that, 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 that sort of particular language, but just, you know, people on the move in a sense, I was, I felt like a person, um, you know, uh, kind of, um, you know, I've, you know, I guess when you, uh, uh, um, you know, come from certain family backgrounds, uh, you might sort of always feel like a person on the move in a certain sense. So, you know, as a family, I made, of course, you know, trips to Portugal, but also um, uh, elsewhere uh, in Southern Africa um, and was, you know, um, uh, anyway, was taken with uh, sort of movement. And so uh, it really grew from, um, you know, from, from, there and I started to, you know, I thought Mozambique had an interesting sort of history. Um, uh, again, I think given the kind of Portuguese colonial element of that, but then its connections also through the liberation movements uh, with South Africa. Um, and I thought, you know, has there really been much on the sort of interconnections, the linkages between Mozambique and India? Um, and that's then where things really started to um, grow. And then, um, you know, uh, I had some, you know, I had some important 
mentors, uh, you know, advisors, supervisors in the kind of British sense at, uh, you know, so as in London. Um, and that really sort of opened things up for me. But I did originally start with a much more sort of, um, uh, you know, like, um, you know, point A to point B kind of exchange sort of, you know, framing. Um, but this is, you know, at a time when, you know, the Indian Ocean was coming sort of back in a certain way, I suppose, you know, slowly. Uh, people, I think, looking to go beyond the kind of, you know, Chaudhryan structuralist sort of work. Um, I'd, of course, like many others, you know, um, uh, been influenced by, um, you know, Amitabh Ghosh, uh, to be sure. Uh, um, you know, I, I sort of recall, you know, staying up um, and just reading in kind of one, you know, sitting in sort of a very big book, but still uh, reading into the sort of evening in an antique land. Uh, and that sort of helped kind of influence my perspective uh, on, um, you know, how to think about, at least then, um, the world of the Indian Ocean. I mean, I've come now to appreciate that I think it's best to think of the Indian Ocean as made up of distinct but overlapping and interconnected worlds, um, but not think of it as a, as a singular world. So, you know, it was sort of a process of both, I guess, um, you know, a personal kind of, you know, my, my personal background, place where I was um, raised and travels to Mozambique um, early on um, and sort of, you know, um, seeing the kinds of influences in Cape Town through the food, uh, but then in a place like Durban, um, uh, you know, having experiences of seeing, um, you know, very vibrant and, you know, quite large communities of, um, you know, South Asian descent. Um, yeah, so that's, I think, from there, my interest just sort of grew and grew. I think that's um, a, a really good segue, speaking of um, transcending the bounds of the nation um, and moving beyond connecting point A to B to move us to this wonderful um, edited collection. And I wonder if you might start us off, Pedro, by um, maybe talking a little bit about what, um, particularly for someone trained as a historian of, say, Africa or South Asia working on Mozambique or Dieu, um, could you tell us a little bit about what this type of Indian Ocean approach, at least in this book, what it brings to area studies? I mean, I, I think um, I'm hoping it pushes uh, further against the area studies, you know, frameworks. I mean, um, I think it's becoming ever clearer um, that those contain... Um, you know, quite serious limitations. Now, this is not to say, if I can use this expression, this is not to say you throw the baby out of the bathwater, you know, somewhat of an old expression, I suppose, um, because, you know, area studies training, of course, especially in a place like the US, um, has brought great, you know, value and benefit. Um, uh, you know, language training especially is very, you know, vibrant uh, in the US, um, a place like Indiana, you know, um, offers uh, a host of, uh, you know, languages from um, you know, all over the place, you know, um, including some that you find at, at, at very few places uh, in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, and that's all kind of funneled through area studies programs. And so I don't want to, 
um, you know, I, I don't want to kick the area studies model too hard, but I, I do think uh, it comes at something of a cost. So I think the book um, and this sort of, you know, and one of the strengths, I think, of an Indian Ocean you know, framework is um, that uh, it immediately uh, decenters, um, you know, a place, but the place doesn't matter. Uh, but it gets you to think about, I think, a range of, um, you know, viewpoints and, uh, you know, gets you to think about sort of positionality, I suppose, uh, where you are looking at things, you know, from. Um, and I think, you know, um, we're trying increasingly to, uh, yeah, to push against um, the area studies model and to really underscore that there are, um, you know, as kind of lived and embodied experiences also, there are um, other mappings, there are other, you know, geographies uh, that get occluded, you know, get hidden from view if you, um, you know, frame something through, um, if you frame certain histories or uh, if you frame, you know, certain movements in these uh, sort of discrete boxes of, you know, West Asia slash Middle East, you know, Africa, South Asia, etc. And I think that's really been one of the strengths um, of uh, um, an Indian Ocean framing. So thank you so much for that, because I think that as someone who's located in South Asian history, Southeast Asian history myself, the sort of contribution of Indian Ocean world history has been both instrumental for, for my own thinking, as well as, you know, provides expansive possibilities for how we think about what archives are, where, where our archives are located, and what methodologies are available to us. So before we begin talking about the book uh, itself proper, um, can you just give us a sense of the geographies of pearl fishing? Where have been the centers of pearl production, distribution, and trade, um, primarily or traditionally, and why is it an important commercial activity? Um, you know, there, there, there are a range of, um, you know, of pearl shell, um, especially. Um, people tend to think when they think of pearls, they're really thinking about, um, well, about a kind of generic, vague category. But you get, you know, Pictada Maxima as a well-known, uh, you know, type and several others. The, um, the kind of centers of pearl production, um, which have included sites in the Atlantic, to be sure, uh, especially uh, in the Caribbean. Um, but the sort of the most uh, productive, you might say, although it depends when you're looking, actually. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's you know it's fair to say that some of the richest you know sources have have been, um, of course, um, you know the beds of the Gulf, right, um, uh, and then also, um, of course, uh, parts of uh, East Africa, but not to any uh, significant degree at all. And then, you know, certainly, um, uh, you know, the Gulf of Manar, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, points dividing um, and connecting the, you know, uh, um, South India and uh, and Sri Lanka. Um, and then also the um, sort of northern waters of the kind of Australian um, coasts that kind of... Um, also connect with um, 
you know, a variety of sort of islands and coasts in, you know, uh, in, in Southeast Asia, insular Southeast Asia, uh, and also some of the Pacific, you know, islands, but not to any great degree. So those have been, um, I think, and, and in different ways, you know, for, for, for instance, um, the kind of Australian extraction uh, is tied very often to pearl shell and less so to pearls, uh, though you do also find, um, you know, pearls certainly, but it's, uh, a, 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 it's more um, about the shell, I think. Um, and, and that includes also older histories uh, uh, of, um, you know, indigenous um, sort of use and display, etc., cetera, um, and wearing of shell. Um, and I think your 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 um, other question, Calvin, was uh, the the sort of the importance of um, of the extraction of pearls. Did, did did I hear that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think. Look, I think often people um, have an idea of pearling as being essentially about the extraction of a luxury good. You know that. Uh, um, the sort of this natural, uh, you know, product that gets commodified um, as um, uh, as a luxury good and is used uh, in a variety of ways for sort of elite adornment and display, right? So both by um, you know Mughal elites and by um, you know sort of you know Parisian buyers uh, um, in you know the nineteenth and twentieth you know, centuries. Um, now, of course, there's Truth to that, right? They, you know, pearls especially uh, are used by elites, uh, but they also have, of course, a much, much broader, you know, history, um, and you know, are used as you will, you know, you both will no doubt know for you know a variety of you know medicinal practices uh, where you know um, you know shell is sort of ground down and used in a variety of uh, sort of medical applications. Um, but then also, you know, uh, there's an exchange of shell, which if you look at sort of deeper histories and often people, when they think of, you know, pearling, it's a kind of a 19th and 20th century sort of, uh, Euro American history, uh, you know, very often, um, with a kind of only a gesture to earlier histories with exceptions, but that's generally, I think the case, um, uh, but you get really kind of deep histories of, um, of the exchange of, you know, shell, uh, of exchange of, you know, pearls even. Um, and I think they're interesting kind of way to read and a kind of way into um, a variety of, I think, important, um, you know, important aspects of the past. So uh, if you want to think about sort of empire and its, you know, structure, you wouldn't necessarily go to pearling immediately, but uh, I think... Pearling uh, does allow you to um, kind of look at the material aspects of the constitution of, uh, um, for instance, a European imperial presence, and whether that's around the extension uh, and the attempt at, you know, the territorialization of ocean space, um, or indeed, um, you know, uh, attempts to um, sort of, uh, you know, capture certain exchange right uh, you know and pearls are um you know they 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 
easily kind of, you know, hidden from view that can be, you know, put in a pocket or, or you know, secreted away quite easily. Um, so it's, you know, sometimes hard to get a sense of um, kind of where they are moving and how they are, you know, moving. Um, but nonetheless, uh, they, they, they are, I think, really often interesting, you know, window. Another theme, of course, you know, exchange, uh, the, you know, the, the sort of the place of, you know, pearls um, in kind of also in sort of, um, you know, in, 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 in helping to structure exchange, I think, even apart from any sort of, um, you know, gifting practices for diplomatic purposes, uh, etc., which which also happened. Um, and, you know, they, they, they are not an ancillary kind of um, or, you know, an afterthought. They are at different points, um, I think, quite, you know, central to, um, to all sorts of ambitions and concerns um, and, you know, commercial interests. Um, and it's not just a 19th and 20th you know, century story that you can center on, you know, the Gulf, for instance, and the consumption of, you know, American and European buyers. That's, that's really, really interesting. And I think that that provides us a good segue to turn to the book itself and its chapters. The book tackles many themes and takes on a broad thematic approach, addressing poor labor and commodification, migration and slavery, gender and folk culture, as well as the environment and globalization in 12 highly readable chapters. Across these chapters, Machado Mullins and Christensen draws from Northern Australia through the Sulu Archipelago to the Gulf of Manar, the Red Sea, and the Persian Gulf. Can you share with us how you organize the book chronologically, thematically, or spatially? Right. Um, you know, this project sort of grew out of a, um, uh, a very sort of... Um, you know, largely conceived um, Australian Research Council, um, you know, project, multi-year project uh, involving, um, you know, a range of people, some of whom are not uh, in the volume, um, uh, you know, and, and, and across the disciplines, right? It, it was sort of, um, uh, you know, sometime in the making. Um, and... The idea sort of originally, I think, was to, um, you know, like um, I stated in the introduction, was, was to try to bring different parts of the ocean into relation with one another around, you know, pearling uh, and, um, and, and, and pearl shell, right? And so it was always going to be a volume that uh, was going to have the sort of translocal um, aspect to it as as a quite sort of central element actually um you know we didn't want the project um i certainly i certainly you know didn't and kind of stress this to be um uh you know simply a collection of kind of discrete you know essays um and so we wanted um you know we wanted contributors uh from, you know, from different disciplines to be thinking about um, how what they are thinking about, writing about, sort of connects to, um, you know, larger circuits, larger currents, uh, larger histories, um, and to kind of have that work as a, um, 
you know, almost as a sort of a kind of a key element, right? So how does your story fit into this larger or, or, or these larger, you know, worlds that also, of course, go beyond the Indian Ocean? Um, and so, you know, I think we managed to do that fairly, su fairly successfully. We, we had uh, an important um, sort of, you know, workshop uh, where we, uh, you know, came together uh, as part of a sort of larger conference um, to flesh these things um, out. And, you know, we were all interested in thinking about pearls and pearl shell, you know, as, um, as a commodity to be sure. You know, we certainly, um, the volume, you know, clearly uh, sort of considers, I guess, the economic value to one degree or another of pearls and shell. But to think, you know, not only of, um, of these as commodities, also to think of them as um, you know having rich culture you know rich cultural histories or you know um, having kind of uh, um, you know vibrant sort of gender histories as well right um, uh, but also uh, making labor a kind of uh, key aspect um, you know uh, again as 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 as, as you both without know uh, and probably um, you know agree with uh, you know, pearling is, you know, it's, there's this kind of romanticized element, you know, to it, um, even while, uh, you know, for sure, there's an understanding that, you know, diving uh, for pearls is, you know, hazardous, um, you know, and many have died. Uh, generally, um, the focus is on you know, the kind of the consumption side, I suppose, the wearing display of in, you know, forms of popular culture, in art, uh, in jewelry, you know, etc. Um, and the sort of other side, the, the kind of extractive enterprises, I suppose, um, that are involved in, you know, collecting and harvesting shell um, get overlooked. So we wanted to also, I think, um, draw attention to, you know, the labor um, kind of dynamics of pearling. Um, and I think that also comes, you know, through, and then these are stories, um, you know, certainly uh, if the temporal frame is a sort of 17th, 18th you know, centuries, if you're thinking about that to the 20th, um, of sort of, you know, processes of a kind of, um, uh, you know, um, not just integration of the Indian Ocean into a kind of, global economy, because uh, that, I think, um, is wrong-headed. But as, you know, the Indian Ocean and pearling being constitutive of a kind of uh, emergent global economy. And I think, again, I think we do that. But again, I'm going to let readers, um, you know, say whether we have successfully or not. Thanks for that, Pedro. Um... I mean, related to that, I wonder if we could ask you a little bit about this, that a question historians think a lot about, and that is that of scale. So, for instance, in the introduction, you write, Pearling connected the small, seemingly inconsequential histories of localized shell collecting, too often occluded or marginalized by scholars and therefore left in the shadows, with the broader currents of regional and global exchange with which they were inextricably linked and whose structures they helped mold. 
How does this volume help us rethink the relationship between microhistories, individual, perhaps transnational lives, and global capital? That is um, a good question because I think it's always very, um, you know, it's uh, always very challenging. Um, before, you know, answering, although I'm sure we will touch it, also one aspect we wanted to bring out was the kind of uh, environmental and even sort of ecological aspects of pearling. We can talk more about that. Um, I think, you know, scale, for me, I think often of scale, you know, the scalar question, um, as I like to think of it, is absolutely, you know, fundamental. Um, but quite how to bring different scales into relation to one another is... Uh, often very, very difficult, right? Um, I think, you know, in the lives that um, are mentioned uh, in different ways in the chapters, um, to the sort of, um, uh, you know, networks that are involved, we try, I, su I suppose, we try in the volume to bring some, you know, kind of, granular detail uh, to processes that have these, um, you know, broader, uh, you know, broader currents. Um, and so I think one, one way that I think is, is, is always worth thinking about to do this is, um, you know, you can start with, and look, we, we don't quite, we didn't sort of adopt a microhistorical uh, methodology here um, to be, you know, fair. Uh, I think that's a kind of related, um, uh, you know, but but specific um, sort of approach. Um, but we do, of course, bring up you know a variety of you know lives uh, and um, you know locate them in again these larger currents. Uh, I think that's one way to do this kind of work effectively is to, you know, start with a small story, you know, start with a small life uh, or, 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 you know, a life, um, uh, you know, start with a, a place, um, but always try to, um, you know, read that place as reflecting, um, you know, a history or reflecting histories uh, that bring it into relationship with, other spaces, right? Um, uh, because I think it, it's it's these sort of on the ground kind of uh, comings, you know, together. I suppose um, where you then I think see um, really the the, the 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 dynamics of how uh, both you know sort of smaller histories which can be you know well histories that can be thought of as small and kind of marginal actually can um you know be shown to be kind of critical elements in the making of what some will think of as sort of large and more important histories. so you can't have one without the other again there's sort of this co-constitution you know they are constitutive of um these larger processes because they are bound up with them, but the larger processes are themselves bound up with these, um, you know, you know, localized, you know, um, uh, sort of, which for some might, again, be in a small sort of story. So you really need to have an eye on, on both. 
So I, I think that one thing that the book does really well is to trace transnational lives across multiple polling sites. For example, we meet uh, Ludwig Strauss, a Red Sea Perler, who uh, once a consul at Jeddah in Shakti in Australia, Ali Al-Nahari alongside uh, Leonard Rosenthal in Paris, and Japanese Karayuki-san, Ibrahim Ahmed in Mergi with ancestral ties to South India. So what do these case studies tell us about global or transnational history? I think they help us sort of see, because look, I think we are trying to, in the volume, and I'm certainly interested in this, um, in thinking about, you know, historical, the unfolding of historical processes. But in being attentive to that, you can kind of lose the, um, you know, the human element and kind of, um, you know, human actors, right? Uh, uh, um, And so I think in looking at, particular individuals at different points in different contexts, um, you can put, you know, in a sense, a face on these processes, but then also be reminded that they are uh, marked by and made up by these individual lives, right? So, again, we get away from, um, you know, simply kind of re-inscribing, I suppose, a structuralist sort of approach, um, where you look at processes and you look at sort of, you know, mechanisms of exchange or, you know, structures of, um, of, of, of exchange um, at a few levels, you know, removed from uh, the kind of um, even, you know, where you can sort of daily existences of individuals who through their actions um, are really helping to, you know, structure those, those processes and those uh, dynamics. So I think um, I think they are you know crucial, and you can't do one without the other. So you really you need to, um, like I've you know said now I suppose a few times, you need to be attentive to uh, these different sort of intersecting dynamics. Thank you. Um, I I wonder actually a sort of different question to the question on scale, if we might say something about the very disciplinary approaches that the book takes um, and whether you might give us a sense of an overview for our readers. So say James Francis Warren's commodity chain methodology compared to Jonathan Miran's biographical approach. Um, I I felt that that was something that was really compelling and, and strong about the book. So maybe for those looking to read um, the volume, if you could just give us an overview. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I, I think you um, are absolutely right. You know, we, we um, of course, wanted uh, um, authors to, you know, um, employ their own methodologies. You know, someone like, you know, Jim Warren, uh, sort of, uh, um, you know, an, uh, a very important figure in uh, Southeast Asian historiography. Um, uh and, and, and his sort of, um, you know, d- development of the Sulu zone as an important um, sort of uh, not just regional but kind of um, global zone, in a sense, you know, employs very much an approach that's influenced by world, you know, systems, to be sure, um, uh, and kind of, uh, you know, sees, you know, the kind of the pearling worlds and the material worlds of uh, the Sulu zone um, with its connections to, you know, China uh, and elsewhere, 
as um, a kind of a site uh, for the sort of, um, uh, you know, the playing out of, um, uh, you know, the kind of, you know, pressures uh, from uh, European and other, um, you know, sort of interests, right? Uh, um, and so, but he's also someone who's, who's influenced by a kind of ethno-historical, um, you know, framing. Um, I think, you know, the range of chapters um, allowed us to, you know, bring in so many different, you know, voices um, uh, and to really, I think, highlight the kind of, you know, richness um, in the sort of worlds of the Indian Ocean around Perling. And so, um, you know, I would, I, I would also say that, you know, um, uh, you know, Carl Muenfeld's, you know, chapter for it, for instance, um, which takes a kind of uh, uh, the perspective of a musicologist looking at, you know, Perling songs um, uh, is also very, very sort of rich um, in drawing attention to that cultural aspect of, you know, of Perling um, uh, uh, around a place like, you know, Broome. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think the, um, because, you know, you can't, you can't encapsulate Perling and um, uh, the exchange of Pearl Shell uh, into any one particular kind of singular in a category. So, um, yes, it's, you know, certainly, you know, they become commodified and you can think about the sort of the Pearl commodity chain as the first chapter does in a sort of overview kind of um, way. But then also, you know, you have to consider, you know, Perling because it was as um, an aspect of labor organization, right? But also as an aspect of uh, imperial political economy. You know, Sam Ostroff's in a chapter on a certain, you know, venture does that quite successfully, I think. Um, and, you know, uh, Perling, the harvesting of pearls, Perling sites, uh, as also being very much uh, bound up with um, aspects of sort of managing a natural resource and and how that is um, done and 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 sort of organised uh, and how the category of pearling becomes uh, kind of an element of uh, imperial sort of control and um, and management. Um, also, you know. Um, Looking at how places like you know Southern Burma, for instance, might uh, be a part of not only uh, a Bay of Bengal sort of world, but also um, uh, you know a larger world beyond that uh, that connects to Southeast Asia and the South China the Sea. Um, and you know, I think um, uh, I think Jonathan Moran's chapter is also very very interesting, uh, and that's. I think he takes uh, um, a quite explicitly sort of biographical approach, uh, if not microhistorical, uh, in looking at a particular, uh, you know, Red Sea magnet in the early 20th you know, century, um, and their sort of uh, um, you know dealings with an entangled entanglements with uh, European um, interests, uh, and not only around um, you know Red Sea uh, uh, you know extraction. Uh, that also, you know, um, 
uh, involved, um, and this is, you know, he's of course well known as a sort of Red Sea historian, uh, you know, places like Massawa, for instance, very importantly. Um, and then, you know, Julia Martinez on Pearling Woman uh, in North Australia, um, where she, I think, has really interesting things to say about the importance of gender for understanding, uh, you know, Pearling. And that also is often kind of, um, you know, left out uh, the, you know, gendered um, element of the pearl trade and how that um, sort of had an impact on uh, on labor organization and 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 um, and, uh, and and its dynamics. So, you know, all in all, um, not to sound like I'm trying to, you know, sell the book, but uh, all in all, I think uh, a really kind of um, rich array of essays. I I completely agree. I just just through reading the volume, I learned so much not just about the economies of pearling, but also the social lives and the environmental uh, aspects that are so deeply, intimately connected to this world of pearling across the Indian Ocean. I was actually really struck by the emphasis on verticality, thinking of the Indian Ocean not just in two dimensions, but in three, um, where you write that pearl harvesting required not only the colonization and the establishment of sovereignty across space, but also reached downwards beneath the waves to reef flows and pearl beds, requiring changing con- conceptualizations of territory. And here you discuss the, uh, the dearth of work addressing the maritime environmental aspects of the ocean itself. Could you please tell us a bit more about how this emphasis on the vertical, uh, what this does for the environmental history of the Indian Ocean role? Right, well, thanks. Um, you know, I, I will maintain that... Um, you know, while there has been work, of course, and a lot of it on environmental histories of sort of, um, you know, the littorals and the kind of lands around the Indian Ocean. Um, and, you know, uh, South Asia uh, has a very kind of richly developed uh, environmental, you know, um, historiography, right? Uh, especially around things like forestry, for instance. Um, also, Southeast Asia, you know, a great deal of, uh, you know, of work has been done over the decades on Southeast Asia's uh, environmental histories, again, often around, um, you know, agriculture uh, and the agrarian and forestry, um, but also uh, some around, um, you know, the ocean, certainly. Um, the Indian Ocean as an environmental space is, I think, still in its infancy, right? We understand now very clearly the Indian Ocean is a peopled space, uh, but it's also an environmental and ecological space. Um, and, you know, I think by trying to bring the ocean itself and its, you know, materiality into um, the discussion matters because, yeah, there, there is a reaching um, in various ways uh, beneath, you know, the waves. There, there, there is this other dimension um, which is not often really, you know, thought about still um, as much as in the last sort of decade and a half, a great deal of sophisticated work has been done on the Indian Ocean um, in, you know, in a variety of ways uh, around, you know, the institutions and mechanisms uh, that help us sort of denaturalize, you know, trade and think beyond a kind of, you know, monsoon Asia where things just move from one place to 
another kind of seamlessly. Um, we are we haven't really thought, you know, the the, the Indian Ocean is still very much um, kind of highway across which things move. You know, certainly, of course, uh, people will, will will think often of the monsoon and the monsoon kind of you know wind and kind of weather patterns. Um, and ocean currents as being an element of the environmental history of the Indian Ocean. And yes, that's absolutely true it is, but I think we need to go beyond uh, the monsoon now uh, and actually bring, um, you know, the, the animal lives of the Indian Ocean into, um, into the picture. And, you know, there is now a volume just recently, uh, you know, come out on the animal histories of the Indian Ocean, um, which I think is sort of beginning to suggest some of the ways that that is, um, is possible. But really, we, we are at the beginnings of that you know, process. And there are a number of challenges which we can you know, talk about. I, I don't want to go on and on and on. Um, but it's, it's a challenging endeavor. But I think now we need to kind of take up you know, the challenge which um, Jeff Bolster made for um, or, or you know, put forth for the Atlantic uh, some years ago. Um, uh, to bring the ocean into Atlantic, um, you know, in, into uh, Atlantic work, uh, I think we need to bring the Indian Ocean also into um, into the frame. And I think that's happening now, you know, slowly. Uh, uh, people are, being, are, are becoming more interested in the kind of fluid ontologies and the wet ontologies of the uh, Indian Ocean um, and, you know, are starting to look now uh, at the kind of materiality of the ocean um, itself, whether that's through literature uh, or, you know, maritime communities through kind of the work of anthropologists. Um, I think we will see this over the next sort of decade change quite dramatically. But, um, you know, we, we must uh, look beneath the surface of the, uh, of the ocean. That's beautifully put. Pedro, thank you. And picking precisely up on this point on ecology, one term that comes up in the book occasionally is the the notion of the Indo-Pacific. And of course, you've given us some examples of case studies that stretch through the um, sort of through the Malay world, through the Moluccas, further on to the South China Sea. Certainly we have um, the frontiers of Northern Australia. And I wonder, I, I mean, maybe you might tell us something about does this type of ecological or environmental approach push the bounds of what we consider to be the Indian Ocean world? Is Indian Ocean an adequate container for maybe histories that are more aligned to the environmental and to the ecological aspects. Right. I, I, I think, you know, the more I've um, thought about it, I think in a certain sense, you know, any, I mean, this is perhaps, um, you know, or will perhaps be um, now very clear to, to some, any, um, you know, any oceanic framing is, artificial by its very nature. So, you know, the kind of heuristic aspect is uh, almost unavoidable, I think. Um, and so, you know, having said that, uh, I don't want to suggest that they don't, uh, you know, that they are, are, are still not, um, you know, of value, but I think they're also, uh, in a sense, 
kind of uh, run the risk of reinscribing another kind of, um, you know, container. So the Atlantic, the Indian, you know, the Pacific uh, are kept um, still, with you know, some exceptions to be sure, uh, as kind of discrete entities, right? Um, and perhaps, you know, here Atlanticists are, 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 um, are sort of most guilty of doing this, but I, I don't want to kind of um, uh, be too critical of any particular uh, in a group. Um, we need, you know, so I think we need to kind of break those down because I think um, when you take a framing like uh, uh, an ecological or an environmental, while there are certainly um, particularities of specific, you know, uh, purling beds or ocean beds or, you know, littorals um, that might not be shared, uh, you know, um, uh, across, you know, oceanic sort of space. Uh, I do think that that opens up the possibility for um, looking at the linkages, both, you know, conceptually, methodologically, you know, materially, um, uh, that cut right across not just areas, but also oceans. Um, and so I think that's also where we are coming to more and more. Um, uh, though sometimes, again, it's sort of, you know, people you know, might pay this lip service, but then to actually do the work because of the challenges uh, is uh, another story. But I think the work is, um, you know, is starting to be done in a quite serious um, way. And I think that will, you know, that will be sustained um, uh, because, you know, you, 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 you simply can't understand a variety of processes. For example, you, you know, slavery um, and unfreedom uh, by just framing it within an Indian Ocean kind of, um, you know, discrete sort of uh, bounded form, right? Um, because you, um, yeah, you just miss a number of, uh, a number of things. Um, where these are, you know, these sort of histories and stories are part of, uh, you know, um, these sort of greater histories of forced migration, if we, if we can use that, you know, language. Um, and so I think also with the environmental and ecological uh, pearl harvesting uh, and extraction um, is not fully understood by only kind of locating it in uh, sort of, you know, um, a kind of, an idea of a singularity to um, its experiences. That was really sort of um, prescient, I think, because I think that this also brings up the question of the bounds of uh, commodity flows and what is a conceptual skill to which we should subject these um, networks of trade and of capital to. It also reminded me of some other recent new works on pearls. I'm thinking of Thomas Olsen's work on the Mongol Empire and pearls, or Molly Warsh's work on pearls and the Iberian Empire. Um, is the story of pearls always one that's intimately tied to empire? Or more broadly speaking, what does the story of pearls tell us about the relationship between capital and empire? Yeah, look, uh, um, you know, I think... And recently this question also came up, you know, can we ever see beyond empire? Um, I think that is part of the story, but the story doesn't begin and end there. I think that's what, you know, I would say. Um, 
you know, uh, and of course, we need to qualify empire. We're talking about European empire, or we're talking about, um, you know, the variety of Asian empires, or we are um, thinking about empire really kind of broadly to encompass, you know, all of these. Um, uh, but again, the story doesn't begin and um, end there. You know, I, I think um, because... The exchange of pearls, uh, even exchange of shell, was seen as a source of revenue in different ways for, you know, different imperial coffers. I think it was um, at different moments a focus for, um, you know, for empires. Um, uh, you know, perhaps only at times for local officials, uh, um, uh, but it was, you know, there was always an eye, sort of historically, uh, on. Um, on pearls and on pearl, um, you know, shell. Uh, I think it gives you a different sort of understanding uh, and take on, I suppose, if I could use that uh, kind of um, formulation, uh, on what empire uh, might look like because you are then, you know, it reorients your uh, perspective, I think. You don't necessarily uh, look at, um, in the case of the Atlantic, for instance, you don't necessarily... Look at the Atlantic from, uh, you know, Lisbon or even from, um, you know, any other sort of single point, right? Uh, but you uh, look at it from, um, you know, a variety of vantage points. I think you look at it from um, what, again, to come back to, you know, the point I made earlier, what might be considered um, kind of marginal, uh, you know, places, Um and to sort of see empires as kind of this patchwork, uh, you know, empire as because you have to look at on the ground kinds of realities uh, around the extraction and the harvesting, uh, etc., of, uh, of of pearls and shell, um, at the kind of you know the valences of how empires, um, you know, uh, are kind of made up as uneven and unevenly constituted, uh, you know, entities, right? Um, uh, and so, and I think that's true whether it's, I mean, it's especially true when you look at European empire, uh, but I think it's true also um, around other imperial formations. So, you know, the question then about, you know, how we can rethink capital and maybe capitalism uh, um, if we sort of, look at pearls and pearling, um, you know, is I think also a really important, you know, question. Uh, and I would reiterate here the importance of, um, you know, in the 19th century, for instance, um, I think looking at uh, kind of on the ground, uh, you know, relationships uh, um, and the kind of, um, the establishment of trading relations between, for instance, you know, American traders in, you know, Zanzibar and South Asian, you know, merchants. Uh, that's where you'll sort of see um, the kind of working out, I suppose, of, um, you know, exchanges that, um, uh, you know, involve kind of market forces in a sense and the political economy of, uh, of empire, but also 
uh, that kind of rubbing up against, uh, you know, vernacular, um, you know, forms of, of, uh, um, of, of, of exchanging and, and of, of, of transacting. And it's in the working out of that and the kind of lumpiness of that process, um, which you then I think really start to see uh, the kind of the makings and the emergence of um, a capitalism and not, you know, capitalism, if I can put it in those, uh, in those terms. So um, I think it, it sort of helps us see, um, uh, especially in the kind of worlds of the Indian Ocean, um, that, you know, the story of a kind of unfolding and kind of, um, uh, you know, emergence of capitalism as, you know, um, simply being a process of incorporation, a kind of, you know, this wave, this sort of, you know, tsunami that, uh, you know, forms from, um, you know, Western Europe and kind of engulfs and, and, and brings the rest of the world into its logics um, is, uh, you know, is um, absolutely wrongheaded. And, and you know, we've, we've, we've understood that for a while now, but I think we're only now really um, through looking at, uh, the worlds of the Indian Ocean um, uh, starting to, I think, give that some sort of granular detail and uh, and really kind of um, establish the dynamics of that working out and 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 that you know and those sorts of entanglements. Thank you. Picking precisely up on these kinds of entanglements, I wonder if, as we near the end of our discussion, we might zoom out. Um, this is, of course, Pedro, not your first time on the New Books Network. Can you place pearls for us alongside other commodities within the Indian Ocean world, including, say, those you yourself have worked on, cotton, ivory, dates, for example, how do these commodities help us see the big picture of the Indian Ocean world? Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, I think I would say to begin to answer that, and that's a, a big, you know, a big question. I, I think I would say that, um, you know, often you had, you know, if, if we sort of think a little bit with, um, uh, you know, uh, with a boat, with a ship for a second, um, you had in sort of few instances uh, a single, you know, ship carrying a single cargo. So um, you always had, or in the vast majority of cases, you had vessels carrying uh, a variety of cargo. So, um, you know, while you, of course, had, you know, in the Gulf, for instance, uh, you know, pearling boats uh, uh, that were specifically going to particular, you know, banks and extracting shell, and that's what they did. So you had those sort of quite localized, very specific and kind of singular, um, you know, extractions. Uh, um, overall, though, uh, and especially then the kind of the carrying of pearls and pearl shell over kind of longer, uh, you know, translocal distances, um, you know, vessels carrying uh, um, not just one cargo, a variety of cargo. So I think um, we start to think of the economies of the Indian Ocean as being sort of not only uh, uh, um, operating at a kind of 
you know, multi-local, but also multi, you know, scalar, um, uh, you know, way to be sure, uh, but made up of these, um, you know, it's kind of interconnecting, uh, you know, sorts of commodities. So the circuits of the circulation of um, of goods was defined by its, uh, 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 you know, um, multiplicity, I suppose, uh, I would say. So they, again, I think, uh, you know, in the 19th century, you, you had vessels carrying, um, you know, ivory, but also carrying, uh, you know, um, other goods carrying uh, at times, you know, shell uh, and pearls, uh, and not only um, and and not only you know ivory, uh, uh, and indeed not only necessarily slaves. Though again, you had instances of uh, of um, you know sort of slaving vessels carrying either you know mostly or, or exclusively slaves, but that wasn't necessarily um, and indeed you know, wasn't uh, um, always the case. So. Um, yeah, I, I would I would I would say that the you know the circuits are sort of made up of these um, kind of intersecting and traders having you know um, uh, diverse portfolios. Uh, um, I guess uh, I would I would I would say so. You know, um, one person I sort of mention in my chapter uh, in this book, um, you know, Ibrahim Ahmed. Um, uh, was uh, uh, to use the language of uh, you know Chris Bailey and Sanjay Subramanian, a portfolio capitalist in some sense, right? Uh, um, was invested in Perling in in Maggie, but 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 uh, uh, was um, you know also uh, looking to invest and investing in um, other aspects of the Burmese you know economy, um, tied also to you know Rangoon as it was known at you know or, or, or called at the time. Uh, um, you know, today's Yangon. Um, so, uh, you know, you get this sort of, I wouldn't necessarily use this language, but uh, um, you get this sort of, in, you know, investment, uh, um, these investments being made, not in necessarily just one area for merchants. So merchants are kind of spreading uh, their risk uh, by investing in these um, other commodities. So before we move on to our last traditional question, can you please read us an excerpt from the book? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm going to read uh, for your listeners um, a paragraph from page nine. So this is a part of the introduction, um, which I hope sort of encapsulates at least some of what the book um, is trying to do. So um, I'll start... Here, while the importance of pearling to the social, cultural, and economic practices of coastal and other areas of the ocean and the communities has been noted by scholars, the overwhelming majority of these works have confined themselves to highly localized or at best regional studies of pearling. This has resulted in a segmented and therefore incomplete view of the ocean's pearl fisheries. Pearl's people in power, this is the name of the, uh, of the volume again, Pearl's people in power recognizes that the dynamics of the surrounding maritime zones of these fisheries were indeed important in shaping how communities and groups approached their extraction and managed this resource, but stresses the imperative of moving beyond their treatment as discrete entities. Rather, the volume stresses how the extraction, collection, and exchange of pearls and shell were interrelated processes 
binding the ports, islands, and coasts of the ocean to one another, and to more discreet markets. An integral part of the increasingly global transactional world of goods, worlds of goods that flowed across the Indian Ocean with greater intensity from the 16th century and shaped its variegated economic, social, political, and urban landscapes in the periods covered by this book, Pearls and Shell left deeply complex imprints on the histories of the ocean. This volume seeks to identify and examine the precise nature of their contours and to locate the ocean's fisheries in relation to broader histories of empire, labor, marine extraction, maritime ecology, and global exchange. And that's where uh, I'll end. Beautiful. Well, Pedro, thank you so much for joining us in this interview. We've taken up a lot of your time. For our last question, can you please tell us what you're working on now and uh, a little bit about your current and your future projects? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I am uh, working on a sort of global history of um, uh, of pearling, um, trying to think about how... Um, you know, in this volume, we try to, with uh, different authors, bring different parts of the Indian Ocean into relation with one another. Um, how we can do that for um, an even larger sort of, you know, scale. So bringing the uh, Atlantic, Indian and Pacific worlds uh, into kind of conversation um, by looking at, you know, a variety of themes that I think are important uh, uh, and overlooked. Some of them I have, you know, mentioned. Uh, so the environment and the ecology of pearling, um, but also labor and labor experiences, um, and uh, I think critically also, which will be a chapter uh, in the book, the kind of um, memory and representation of uh, of those pasts, what that looks like uh, today. Um, so it's a book that will both um, sort of range widely uh, and draw on uh, my own quite extensive archival work in, you know, places like Colombo, uh, but also um, Goa, uh, uh, um, also, um, you know, Zanzibar, uh, but also Australia, uh, etc., uh, will draw though also uh, on on the work of uh, you know scholars as well. So it's trying to sort of um, braid archival uh, you know and primary sort of sources with uh, a, a you know variety of uh, across the disciplines secondary sources because I'm also interested uh, for sure, um, which I guess came out in our uh, discussion uh, in pearls and shell as um, as objects. So. Um, you know, through art historical work and kind of, you know, museum studies, um, you know, perspectives, uh, think of, uh, um, you know, think of these um, and the materiality uh, in kind of interesting ways. I'll, I have a future sort of project, which I've been collecting material for and have done some presentations on, but haven't really developed it um, uh, quite yet, which is a departure for me, but it's kind of extends my interest in the environmental uh, uh, but um, wants to bring in uh, then kind of other aspects uh, uh, as well, which is to say, um, looking at um, you know the eucalypt and eucalyptus, uh, um, you know uh, uh, trees um, as kind of 
an important part of the making of Portuguese empire, um, uh, especially in an African context, but not only, but that I think will be the focus. And I'm not sure if that will become a book or just, you know, some chapters, articles, um, but I've started to collect uh, uh, work on that. And, and there's an interesting sort of history there, um, especially um, from the sort of 19th uh, and into the 20th, and indeed into the post-war um, world. Um, and that kind of ties to uh, kind of medical histories, I suppose, and histories of disease um, as well. So, that, But, you know, that's quite a departure uh, <laughs> for me and takes me into some kind of new areas. They both sound like fascinating projects, and we look forward to having you back on New Books Network to discuss them when they're out. Thank you to everyone for listening in to today's episode in which we explored Pearls, People and Power, Pearling and Indian Ocean Worlds, co-edited by Pedro Machado, Joseph Christensen and Steve Mullins, published by Ohio University Press in 2020. It is available now on Amazon and other outlets. This is your host, Tamara Fernando. And I am Kelvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.